And welcome back to another episode of Modern Survivability. Think fast, think accurate. On this episode, we're going to be talking about wilderness survival. Stay tuned. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Which one did you take? Hopefully you never have to take the one less traveled by, but you never know. And I mean that only in a survival context, not what Robert Frost had originally intended. Things happen in life that may, may cause hardships. As for this cast, we're going to dive deep into some wilderness survival. Because you either had to bug out through the wilderness, or more likely than not, you were out on an adventure of some sort and things went south. Now you have to survive. First and foremost, like we briefly hit on in the survival psychology cast, the will to survive must be strong and unwavering. When put into an actual survival situation, the smallest thing can cause even more catastrophic consequences. For instance, a small wound left unaddressed can cause an infection and possibly even death. So let's dive deep into the will to survive, as I believe it's the most important thing other than actual survival knowledge. Every human, and animal for that matter, has an autonomic response to danger or perceived threats. Some of these things happen, uh, some of the things that happen to you whenever you're put into a survival situation or a really tough situation like this, um, some of the, the physical things that happen to you, your heart rate and your blood pressure increase, you breathe faster and your muscles tense up, your pupils dilate so you can see better. Some accounts I've read even say that you get a better sense of smell. I don't really know if that one's true or not, but the other ones definitely are. And these responses are all preparing your body for the fight or flight. We talked about this before. Fight, flight, or freeze. Those are one of the three things you're going to do in a bad situation. All that ties into the will to survive. The will to survive boils down to having something to live for and or a reason to live for. Most people, when faced with dire circumstances or survival situations, something super bad like that, when it happens, often the first thing they think about are their loved ones. This is where the majority of people will draw their strength. To do this first requires self-preservation and also looking out for members of a group if you happen to be at one when something happens. After that is accomplished, then you can start the survival process. Just like any other survival situation, stopping and getting your bearings both physically and mentally are paramount. Next is to take stock of the personnel and equipment that you may have. Then you make a plan. You execute the plan, and if you have to, you make some adjustments along the way to make sure you make it out alive. Now let's dive into the wilderness survival process. Keep in mind that these are my suggestions for things that I'm equipped to do. Everybody um, lives in a different area. They have different obstacles. They have different equipment and resources and different levels of skill. This is based on mine, so I'm going to give you these examples. First, we have to realize the situation that we're in. For this one, I went out on a climbing trip in a really, really remote area. During the climbing trip, my climbing partner became injured. He is unable to walk. However, thankfully for us, he is at the bottom of the climb, close to a relatively large flat area. This will aid in an airborne rescue if we need it. Unfortunately, we are about 20 miles out into the wilderness, and due to the severity of the injury, he will definitely require a helicopter to get him out. Now, when I talk about severity, 
This is not a life-threatening injury. However, it has immobilized him to the point where I cannot get him out physically by myself. Now, the first thing to do is to treat the injury as best as possible before help is sought. So, the first thing I do is I make it splint out of some large sticks and some 550 uh, cord that I have in my pack. The next thing I do is move him into a comfortable position out of the elements uh, before I go to seek help. The next problem that has presented itself is in the form of darkness. During all the work of treating the injury and repositioning him, darkness has set in. We both agree that because of the dangerous terrain that I would have to travel, I should probably wait until morning to try to find help. We are two days into a four-day trip, so no one's already no one's looking for us already. They're not already expecting us to be back. I do not have a personal locator beacon, but I do have a GMRS radio with about a 15-mile range. However, that range is only useful if I'm transmitting from a mountaintop. Every 30 minutes or so, I check his leg for any changes, specifically pulling the blood anywhere inside the leg because you have some changing the color and coloration of the leg. Um, that can mean much bigger problems for us. And then terrain or not, dark or not, I would have to go and try to get help because his life would literally depend on it. Luckily for us, uh, it appears just to be a really bad break. All of his other vitals are good, um, but I do give him some ibuprofen I kept in my first aid kit in my pack to kind of dull the pain. Only after I determined that there wasn't no other injuries that could be, you know, anything from cuts and, you know, anything else that was really going on before I gave him that medication. And he wasn't. It was just a break in the leg. Now that morning has come, I make some quick food that I already had in my pack because we plan to be out for four days. He needs some energy, and I also need energy. I probably need a little bit more than he does because I've got to hike out 20 miles and try to get him help today. I leave him with his bag, which has everything he needs for about another three days. Everything from food, water, a radio, and other typical survival stuff that you would have found in a get-home bag, bug-out bag, um, some of the other things we talked about in previous casts. Typical survival stuff. Before I leave, I mark the location on my GPS. I also write that down on a piece of paper for a backup. I gather a stripped-down version of my normal bag, leaving behind everything I absolutely don't need. Although the trail is 20 miles long, it follows canyon floors and valleys for the majority of the time, so I can make really good time getting back. When I leave, I have to make sure that I rest and consume water at normal intervals along the trail. It does me no good to get hurt or have a heat stroke trying to get back, because then we both could die. Every few miles, I climb to a high spot and try to use the radio to contact him and to try to contact help. Because of his location, I lose a signal after about two miles. Still no signal from anyone else. It takes all day to get about another 17 miles down the trail due to the heat. I climbed another small peak and tried again for help. This time I received an answer from a park ranger. He in turn called search and rescue and gave both sets of coordinates from me and the person needing to be rescued. I continue on to the trailhead where I'm met by search and rescue. They have also dispatched a helicopter from a local hospital to help the rescue. As most parks, national parks and stuff like that, with the exception of a few, do not have a dedicated search and rescue helicopter assigned to them. Um, the one that we're in particular doesn't have their own helicopter, so they have to resource from a local area, which happened to be a hospital. Once we're on the helicopter, we go out to the coordinates I provided. It only took about five minutes to get there. Um, we find that nice spot. We land. The crew checks out my buddy and prepares him for movement. 
Then we're taken um, to the local hospital, and he's taken care of. So that part of it's over. I talk about that part really quick, and it seems like it's pretty simple. And, oh, I'll just call a helicopter. Sometimes you can't call a helicopter. Sometimes they have to take you out by foot. Uh, This case, it was pretty straight to the point, but it did invoke a little bit of that wilderness survival concept into it. And we'll talk about why here in just a second. Because I'd left him with all the tools he needed to survive temporarily, he did did fine. He still had the pain, obviously, because he had some broke bones. He only ended up with two broken bones in his leg and one in his foot. Considering he took about a 30-foot whipper on a uh, pretty hard climb and slammed into the wall, those are pretty – the injuries aren't that bad. It could have been a lot, lot worse. Now, let's look at some of the tools used, some of the things done, and some of the things that would have been done a little bit different had the scenario been tweaked just a little bit depending on who you are. So now we're going to talk about some of the main tools that were specifically used during this scenario. The first one being GMRS radios. These normally require a license to operate. However, during an emergency, and I do mean a true emergency, you can use one if you have to. I already had my license, so that was already taken care of. These radios can have a range up to 25 to 30 miles from mountaintop to mountaintop and under ideal conditions. They are line of sight radios, so canyon walls and everything else in the canyon that would get in between the two radios would cut down on the signal dramatically. However, I had climbed peaks um, to get the signal out further to rescuers. My buddy couldn't hear me because he was down on the edge of a canyon. Next on the equipment list was my GPS. Now, like I've said before, knowing how to use a map and compass is an important skill to have and practice. This time, however, I chose to use my GPS because it was faster and, for my circumstances, more practical. I still had the map and compass on me, but as far as the GPS goes, there are a ton on the market for any budget and any kind of use. Um, Some of them have specific uses for them. Garmin really has the market on lock right now. Um, There are a couple other ones that are up and coming. They also do really well with the um, locator beacons. There's a couple of different companies out for that, too. I use one myself, and it works flawlessly, the GPS, that is. Um, just like any other piece of gear, you have to practice with it to be successful. There are a lot of features on most modern GPS units that are specific for whatever you're using them for. There are some for fishing, hunting, geocaching, um, for the rifle range. It all depends on what you're using it for. However, take the time beforehand to find out what your GPS is capable of and what you're going to be using it for, what those features do, how to access them quickly, um, how to input um, grids quickly. Most GPSs have a button that is uh, normally labeled as mark, and when you hit it, it'll mark that spot instantly. You just have to give it a name. Um, But like I said, just practice with it and get really good because you don't want to have to be in a scenario like this and learn how to use it on the fly because that literally could be the difference between life and death. Another piece of gear that we used in conjunction with the GPS in this scenario was a notepad and a pencil to write things down. This time, I used it to write down the grid as a backup. I took the grid off my GPS, I wrote it on a piece of paper, I folded that up, I put it in my pocket, and I took off down the trail. Um, There's many different reasons for doing this. For one, batteries die and electronics break. Just in case that breaks, now I still have my buddy's location in my pocket to give to the rescuers. 
And we talked about that in a previous cast about having that stuff on hand. And this time it really did come in handy. Generally, you want to keep one, um, if not on your person, for your daily carry or your EDC. Um, definitely in a get-home bag or a bug-out bag. You want to have a notepad and a pencil. Other important items were a substantial amount of water that we took with us. For one, we're going to be out for a couple of days. For two, we're going to be rock climbing. So there's a lot of a physical exertion going into it, burning a lot of calories, doing a lot of sweating. So you need a lot of water to keep going. And a way to filter more. Generally, on a trip like this, I use a Sawyer Mini. Um, they're great, small, compact little water uh, water filters. Fit on the end of a water bottle. You can filter quite a bit of water this way. And they haven't let me down yet. So Sawyer's a way to go. There's some other ones on the market too, but that's the one I use. Next is the food I carry, which is typically for a trip like this would be Mountain House freeze-dried meals and other things like trail mix, some small snacks and stuff like that, maybe a couple of cliff bars, um, things like that. If I was doing an overlanding trip, my loadout would be completely different because, for one, I have a vehicle to carry all the weight, so I can carry as much as I want. Plus, I have a cooler to keep everything cold, like maybe room for a steak or something to throw on the grill after I was done for the day. Now, let's talk about some things that went well and some things that maybe we could tweak a little bit for a different scenario. I used the probable best course of action for this scenario. First, I immediately treated the injuries and prepared him for a rescue. Then I initiated the plan to effect the rescue. All in all, it's pretty simple, not bad. That's what most most intelligent people, I would say, would do in a situation like that. Uh, some things that we could have changed a little bit, maybe trying to initiate the rescue from the point of injury. In this scenario, it probably wouldn't have worked too great because of how far we were out into the wilderness. We weren't expected back for an additional two days. Um, also, it was more of a desert environment. So a signal fire, yeah, you could have started one, but it probably wouldn't have went over too well for you. So some things to think about. Also, may, you said, well, maybe we could use a signal mirror. They can be seen for that distance if somebody happens to be looking in that direction whenever you're using it. So those are other things to think about. Some other things that go into a true wilderness survival situation could be, but not limited to, and some of those things are hunting for food building adequate shelter for your environment and having the ability to treat wounds and injuries with little resources or found natural resources. Let's talk about a few of these. In a true situation in the wilderness where you have to survive hunting and fishing or maybe trapping or even gathering edible plants could be the difference between life and death. Knowing ahead of time or having some sort of reference would go a long way to keep you from being unalived by the great outdoors. Having some basic bushcrafting skills would also come in super handy in a situation like this. There are wilderness first aid courses that are available to take. This will teach you many different things that are specific to the wilderness. They may not be seen in an urban environment. Um, typically, generally, you're going to find some of these classes in more of your smaller towns and outlying areas. Sometimes you'll find them in bigger cities. It just all depends on who's given the class, what their schedule looks like, and really who their intended target is. And I say that because sometimes their, their target is a little bit different. Um, urban environment is totally different. And a bunch of people that live in a more of an urban environment tend not to spend as much time further out in the outdoors. So wilderness first aid courses are great, and they, they can be used in an urban environment. Those skills are kind of universal sometimes. It all depends on what skills we're talking about. Uh, but for this specifically – 
we talked about some of the most common types of wilderness wounds in a previous cast. They include burns from things like campfires, hot cups and pans, uh, cuts from processing wood or game, cutting cordage, um, all sorts of things like that. Uh, these especially had to be treated before they become infected, which leads to a whole other set of problems. Next would be shelter construction. Some of these... Um, would be anything from a simple tarp shelter with a tarp and some cordage all the way up to a debris shelter taught in some bushcrafting classes. Even found shelters um, can be an option like a cave or a natural rock shelter, like a rock overhang or something like that. It's all dependent on the environment. Dependent on your environment, that'll be the shelter that may be your number one priority. Which brings me to one of our last topics, and that is what we called in the military priorities of work. And I think that can bring into the civilian world a, a little bit of a different uh, view or aspect of things, how we set things up whenever we're doing something, especially, especially in a situation where you find yourself um, a survival situation, which is literally what we're talking about, or in a, a situation that is maybe not as survival-ish, but you're going to have to do these things or it could put you in a worse situation that would turn into a survival situation if things continued on down that path. So priorities of work. And really what that means is when you get to a spot or something happens, what are you doing first? What are you doing second? What order are you doing things in? Because they're not always in the same thing, same order. So for instance, first, if it's cold outside or bad weather or you're in the middle of a scorching hot desert, shelter is going to be your number one concern. Then you got to figure out your food and your water situation. Generally, water first, seeing as you can only last about three days without water versus about three weeks without food. There again, situation depending, and it also depends on the person. Now, if we find ourselves, as in my scenario, first aid was first on the list, quite literally, followed by water and food and then rescue. Um, the shelter was in there, but not as super high on the list because of where we were at. Like I said, it all depends on the situation. Make sure your priorities are straight because it literally could mean life or death. If you're in the scorching hot desert, shelter is going to be first, followed by a water source, and then food, so on and so forth. Um, there again, there's a lot of things that go in there, and there's a lot of what-ifs. So we could what-if it to death. These are just things that, to get you started. Um, literally, I went through this based off my knowledge and skills. You may have more knowledge on a certain aspect. Okay, cool. Good job. Keep learning. Always keep learning. Work smarter, not harder, they say. Put that into action. So now that all of that has been done and we put in some sort of, put all that in some sort of perspective, which of the two roads are you ready for? The one less traveled? Are you? I mean, really? Will it make all the difference? Who knows? Something to think about. Thanks for listening to the show. If you liked it, please subscribe on Spotify and share it with your friends. Please check out listener support if you would like to donate to help get more content published. Check out Question of the Cast. You know I love feedback. Speed is fast, but accuracy is final. Stay safe, and remember, you are the last line of defense.